I have a question for y'all. So what is the cost of salvation? I mean, what can you do to be saved? Reading the Bible every day and praying every day, would it save you? Or attending every worship service our church offers you? And by that, somehow God will save you? Or serving the church faithfully, mowing, cleaning, and giving out tracts, all those things would save you? Or faithfully giving to church week in and week out? Would, would that be counted in heaven for your salvation? Or helping the poor and the needy? Or trying not to sin daily? You know, you do your best, do your best not to sin, and somehow God will be pleased with it and then save you? While we all need to do all these things as believers, I'm sure many of us already know that salvation is never gained by these works. Or you cannot buy salvation with money. Why? Isaiah 55, which the, ver the chapter we are memorizing through this year says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The bread, the drink that gives us, give us life, the eternal life, you cannot purchase them with money, but they are all freely given in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the manna from heaven for our eternal life, and who is the drink of living water. Once we drink him, we will have the well in our heart, which will spring forth forever. And that's the way we are saved. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear. You know, we are by grace, through faith, saved without works, because it's not from us, and nobody can boast about our Salvation. But I have another question for you as well. Does the fact that we are saved without a cost mean that living the Christian life is costless? I mean, you don't have to pay anything to live the Christian life. In fact, there are lots of Christians who make wrong conclusions about the doctrine of free salvation. They reason in this way. Because I'm saved without a cost, I can follow Christ without a cost. So some people attempt to follow Christ without counting the cost of following Jesus. In today's text, we also find a group of people who attempted to follow Jesus without counting the cost. So outwardly, excuse me, I need to wipe up my nose first before I go further. So outwardly, they were following Jesus. But inwardly, they haven't truly become disciples of Jesus. So some of them followed Jesus only because they were fascinated with Jesus' power of healing the sick and casting out demons. And others followed Jesus because they ate the bread and fish Jesus multiplied a few weeks ago. In today's text, Jesus is warning these people who dare to follow Jesus, follow him without counting the cost. Of discipleship. The Lord Jesus first offers straightforward teaching on the cost of becoming his followers and then illustrates this truth with two parables, which are twin parables, which teaches the same truth. So let's go to Luke 4, 14, verse, verses 25 through 33. Now, 
great multitudes went with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Last, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. The Lord Jesus concludes. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. It is impossible to become Jesus' follower unless we forsake everything. So the thesis of today's sermon, today's message, message is this. We must count the cost of following Jesus before following him. So what should we do once our calculation is done? Of course, we should be ready to pay it. So here's a question for all of us. What is then the cost of following Jesus? Point number one. What is the cost of following Jesus? Our whole life. It is our entire life. So to follow Jesus, letter A, we must put Jesus first before everything. Verse 25, again, now great multitudes went with him. These people were thinking that they were followers of Jesus because they were following Jesus physically, but Jesus knew that many of them weren't real followers yet. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his very own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So how should we treat Jesus as his followers? We must put our relationship with Jesus above all the other human relationships on earth. Of course, we should not take the hate language in verse 26 literally. The rest of the Bible is very clear that we must love and respect our family members. So it cannot be meaning that Jesus really wants us to hate our brothers and sisters, mom and dad and wife and children in a literal way. Here, the Lord is using a rhetorical device that highlights the necessity of our exclusive devotion to himself. So because our love and devotion to Jesus are so much greater than any relationship we have on earth, our devotions and love to our family members would seem almost like hatred. So let me illustrate it with this truth about water. The human skin can tolerate about 130 degree water for about second, uh, 30 sec seconds without getting burned. So let's say you put your hand, one of your hand, in that water, 130 degree water for about 29 seconds. So they're not getting burned. But you put out of your hand out of that water and then put it into a water that is 110 degree. So from 130 to 110, what would you feel in your skin? You'll feel cool, right? You'll feel it cool. But did you know that 110 water, degree water, is actually quite hot 
water. Many of us will feel pain as soon as we touch 110 degree water. It is what Jesus means here. Because our burning heart toward Jesus is so hot, when we compare it to our warm heart to our fellow believers, even our warm heart toward other fellow believers would feel cold. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. So we have to remember that Jesus has to be first before any other human relationship we have on earth. So then what do you think of the demand that Jesus imposes on his followers? Is Jesus' command to put him first before all other people too demanding? As an Asian, actually, I can, uh, ha- it, this can be a little greater, has greater force to me because Asian people are really into, you know, taking care of their parents in a great deal. Actually, they would even give up their lives to take care of their parents. It's very common. So it's a real, I mean, some people, some Asians especially would feel that Jesus' demand uh, is too, too much. But we have to remember what he demands is not unreasonable. Do you struggle with putting Jesus before your children? Then what is the message of the gospel? We have to remember that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Father loved us so dearly and gave his son as a sacrifice on the cross. Then can you tell God in, as you're looking at his face, hey, Father, I cannot give up my children for you when you gave up your one and only son. Or what about uh, putting Jesus before our parents? Did you know Jesus gave, Jesus gave up his duty to take care of his biological mother, Mary, to die on the cross for you? Let's go to John 19. In John 19, we find Jesus being crucified, and in front of him there were stood his mom and other ladies. So verse 25, he says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Many scholars believe this disciple is John the Apostle. So Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, he was still concerned of his biological mother. Why? Because he was the first son. He had the duty, he had the obligation to take, look after his mom, probably a widow by this time. Yet, because he loved us so much, he gave up his life on that cross, and even then he wanted to make sure that his mom was taken care of. So he told one of his disciples, hey, you take care of my mom just like your mom. And so John took Mary along with him as, he, as if he was, she was his mother. What about putting Jesus before ourselves? Do you think it is too hard to put Jesus before yourself? Then we need to remember that the message of the cross itself declares the tremendous sacrifice Jesus made for us. He put you first before himself. That's the message of the gospel. He valued you more than anything else, so he gave up his life on the cross to save you from sin. And when we know this truth, how dare we say, looking at Jesus, Lord, we can't do it. It's too much. 
It's unreasonable to give up everything we have on earth. That is unreasonable, I would argue. So note this, the very first person you have to hate is yourself. In verse 26 again, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So you have to hate your own life to become his disciple. Of course, we're not talking about a destructive self-abasement here. But what Jesus means is this. Whenever there's a clash between the interests of yours and interests of Jesus, you have to put the interests of Jesus first before the interests of yours, no matter how high that cost may be. So in the next verse, the Lord gives us a specific direction to put him before, put himself before our own self. Verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he said, point letter, uh, letter B, to follow Jesus, we must embrace the end of our living. The end of our living. So many people are confused about the meaning of cross-bearing. So when they're asked about the, the, the reality of taking off the cross, the first thing they think of is probably the unbelieving spouse that gives them a hard time. Oh, he's my or she's my cross I have to bear. Or children that are rebellious and constantly hinder you uh, from you know, to, to follow Christ. Or even the brothers and sisters in the church who are giving, giving them a hard time. They think these people are their cross. Or sometimes they think about the financial you know, crisis or health issues. The pains that they come along with these things would be the cross. But actually, these, all these external things are not the cross that you have to bear. Look at Jesus' word again. What did he say? Whoever does not bear his cross, his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talk, talking about the cross that belongs to us. This is not something external to us. This is something internal to us. And the Jewish audience, when they heard Jesus' word, hey, you guys have to take up your cross and follow me, they all understood what Jesus meant. Why? Because they all saw the criminals who followed after the Roman soldiers, soldiers while bearing the cross. None of these criminals came back alive. Every single person who bore the cross was crucified and died right there. So they all knew what he meant. By taking up the cross, it means we have to die to self. And the Jew also, for the Jewish audience, the crucifixion wasn't just horrible because it was a painful, but because it was a shameful death. You know, the Jewish, the Judaism, the Jewish society was a, the culture of shame, uh, honor, and shame. And Korean culture is similar. You know, losing face is a big deal. We don't want to lose face in any situation. For the Jewish people, though, uh, when they think about hanging on the cross or hanging on a tree, that was the worst thing could ever happen to Jewish people. Why? According to Deuteronomy 21-23, anyone who hangs on the cross is accursed by God. And that's what it means of Jesus being crucified to nail to the cross. He bore our curse on him so that the curse on us would be lifted. And also what about the, the death by the hands of the Gentiles who are like dogs in the eyes of Jewish people. And what about being naked 
All your fellow Jews, Jewish people will see you being naked, slowly dying on the cross. All these things would mean the worst shame Jews could ever think of. So it wasn't about just pain that comes along crucifixion, but also the shame. The Jewish people understood what Jesus meant. So we have to embrace the end of our living along with the inevitable pain and shame that belong to the crucifixion. When we say... We take up our cross and follow Jesus. So those who follow Jesus with their cross are the people who have embraced their death on the cross just like uh, their master was crucified on the Mount of Golgotha. And they, they have nailed their flesh with its passions and desires to the cross. It is a deliberate choice every disciple has to make before following Jesus. So let me say it again. It's a deliberate choice Every disciple has to make before following Jesus. What I mean is, you can't just do like this. Oh, looking back, there was, there was a moment that I followed Jesus, but I didn't really make any decision. I wasn't willing to pay for anything, but somehow I'm a disciple today, which, means, which, which will never happen, according to Jesus' words. You have to make a conscience decision that you nail yourself on the cross before you follow Christ. So Galatians 5. 24 and 25, Paul says, and who those who are Christ, which means those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires. This is a fascinating, fascinating verse to me. You know, when Paul said, those who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with his passions and desires, he didn't mean that somehow Jesus crucified us on the cross and we are being passive there. No, the verb he uses here, have crucified, is an active verb. What is the agent of this action? Us, who belong to Christ. So every single person who is in Christ have crucified his or her flesh with his passions and desires. It means if you haven't done it, you may not be one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember, we are the active agents in declaring our death and following Jesus. So I hate the slogan, let go, let God. It is extremely unbiblical. Of course, we will never save us by an, as an active agent. Yet, once God saves us and we begin to follow Christ, we are the active agents to follow Christ. There's no other way to interpret this passage. So that's the conclusion we have to make as well. So again, what is the cost of following Jesus? Our whole life, including everything we have today and will have tomorrow. Here, we need to stop and have a very important and theological discussion. At the beginning of the sermon, I said, salvation is free. It's doctrine of free salvation, right? It costs nothing to be saved. But here Jesus is saying, it costs everything to follow him. So what is the relationship between the free salvation and costly discipleship? Are they the one thing or two separate things? But actually there are so many Christians who are confused about this relationship. And I've heard preachers, pastors teaching this, this doctrine. They say because salvation is free, and because discipleship is costly, they are not the same thing. So we have two groups of people in our church. One group 
are the people who have believed Jesus but haven't really committed themselves to Christ as disciples yet. So they are believers but not disciples yet. And there's another group who are believers and they have truly committed their lives to Christ. So these are the, the mature Christians who get all the glory in the church. What do you think about this kind of logic? The problem here is this. What people say doesn't really matter, right? What Jesus says matters. But Jesus says here in Luke, especially in the Gospels, that um, there's a per- if there's a person who doesn't take up his cross and follow him, he's not his disciple. And he also says this kind of person will face destruction in the end. So let's go to Luke 9. Let's, in Luke 9, the Lord Jesus again is talking about the cost of discipleship. Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, the same kind of teaching. And what is then the cost? I mean, what is the result of not doing that? That's verse 24. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? What does Jesus say here? He says, if you're not following me with the cross that you have to bear every day, what you will face is eternal lostness and eternal destruction. So this is a real dangerous teaching. If you say, if you reason, okay, I'm a believer but not yet disciple, and somehow you feel safe about your salvation, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand what salvation is at all. You're not my disciple. You are not there yet. What about the book of Acts? The book of Acts is filled with the stories about people, you know, witnessing to the unbelievers and unbelievers becoming Christians. In Acts 14, 21, Paul and Barnabas are in Derby, city of Derby, and they are doing this. What they do? They do the preaching of the gospel. So Acts 14, 21, it says, and when they had preached the gospel in that to that city and made many disciples. What did they do to make disciples? Did they preach the gospel and make people believe it and then somehow growing them in faith? And then at a certain moment, after they are saved, they made a decision to follow Christ, and then they declared them to be the disciples? No. Please help me. If you can find any data in the New Testament, there's a person who is a believer and not yet disciple, please let me know. I haven't found one yet. If you read through the book of Acts, all the believers who embrace Christ, they are immediately called disciples, which means the apostles preach this message the gospel, Jesus Christ died for you, and he gave everything to you. Now it's your turn to give everything back to him. That was their gospel. Of course, you're saved by nothing, costing you nothing. Yet, after you're saved by that grace, you, of course, give everything to him to be, to, as his disciples. So then how can we explain the seeming dilemma between salvation that is free and discipleship that is costly? To understand this organic relationship, we have to understand the nature of the biblical faith. Biblically speaking, faith is much more than assenting to facts. And so many people are confused, especially children are very confused about this idea. They think that acknowledging that Jesus died for their sins and rose again from the dead somehow is 
the biblical faith, but the biblical faith includes that, but necessarily, it's not necessarily biblical faith yet. Because biblically speaking, faith means trust and reliance. So when you believe something according to the Bible, you're not just assenting to the facts, the data, but you actually bring yourself and put it on it. Because you trust it and you rely on it. And you rely on Jesus with your whole heart as the only anchor of your salvation. And this trust relationship always builds a relationship that is united and committed. The Bible is very clear. When we believe Jesus, we are dead in his death and we are risen in his resurrection. We are perfectly and organically united with Christ. That's a union with Christ. And then that will make us to be committed to each other. Simply put, faith in a person builds a trust relationship. And this trust relationship always grows into a united and committed relationship. So if you see no real united and committed relationship, you can safely assume that there is no real trust and reliance between the two people. The best human relationship that illustrates this true trust relationship is the marriage relationship. We know that marriage is more than romance, right? Young people especially, listen, marriage is not about just about love, although it includes love. So when you marry your spouse, it doesn't simply mean that you love your spouse. It also means that based on a trust relationship, you unite yourself with and commit yourself to your spouse. That's what we mean when we say, I do to our marriage vows. So marriage is a relationship of unity and commitment based on love and trust. Interestingly, the Bible often uses the analogy of human marriage to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his believers. So 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So this is a relationship we have with Jesus. We are spiritual wives to Christ, who is our spiritual husband. And can you now see why and how our faith in Christ leads us to commit our whole beings to Christ? As his spiritual wife, we come to him without a cost. Did any of you pay to your spouse to be his or her spouse? No, I didn't pay anything to Lily. I didn't offer her anything and say, hey, Lily, this is the amount of money I have in my account. Would you please marry me? I didn't do that. Actually, I couldn't do that. I was a student. There was zero money in my account. Lily was brave enough to marry me with no money. And uh, believe it or not, after 10 years, I don't have money still. But that's fine. (laughs) She still loves me. But you know what? When I married her, I gave her something. I didn't give her money. But I gave me to her. Everything that belonged to me. When I said, when I said I do to the, my marriage file, I wholeheartedly gave everything, my body, my time, the future possession I would have. I was willingly give everything to her without any reservation. So we don't say after we marry, honey, I'm going to love you throughout the weekdays, but let me be free a bit over the weekends because I want to date some other girls, right? Nobody would say that with the right mind. 
But so sadly, so many Christians treat Jesus like that. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart about myself sometimes. Sometimes I love the world more than I love Jesus. And I so I, I even see many Christians, they feel nothing about loving the world and following after their fleshly desire. And they feel safe about their, their faith. And there's nothing, there's something really wrong about that. Without a full commitment to our spouse, there's no real marriage relationship, just like that. Without a full commitment to Christ, there's no real relationship with Jesus Christ. What can we conclude about the relationship between free salvation and costly disciple? We can conclude that free salvation and costly disciple always go together. There are two sides of one coin. So when you put your faith in Jesus, it costs you nothing, right? But once, as you're being saved, what would you do? You would be willingly give yourself to Jesus. Why? Because he gave himself to us freely and willingly. That is the relationship that is based on biblical faith. Now, coming back to our text, who can follow Jesus? That's the question now we are going to answer. To show how foolish it is to attempt to follow Jesus without full commitment, the Lord offers two twin parables in the latter part of the text. The first, he gives us the parable of the power builder, and second, he gives us the parable of the warring kingdom, uh, warring king. And here, he gives us the same phrase in both Parables. If you look at verse 30 of 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? And if you go to verse 31, or what king going to make a war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he can win the battle? So what should we do before following Jesus? According to these two twin parables, we must sit down first and count the cost of following Jesus to see if we are ready to pay the cost of discipleship. So point number two, who can follow Jesus? Only the one who is ready to pay the cost of discipleship. So both parables teach the same truth, that only those who are ready to pay the cost will be able to become disciples. That's letter A. Only those who are ready to pay the cost will be able to become disciples. So what is the problem with the tower builder? Let's look at verse 30, 28 again. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether that he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish. The tower builder didn't count the cost before building the tower. He made a hasty decision to start building the tower that he could not finish. Why? Probably because it was, it was an emotionally driven decision. And his hasty decision brought shame to himself. Did you know that the world's tallest unoccupied building resides in the center of Pyongyang, North Korea? It's called Ryugyong Hotel. This pyramid-shaped 105-story hotel building whose construction began in 1987 is the tallest unoccupied building uh, in the world. You might wonder why this old and tall building is still not occupied. It is because it hasn't been finished. They started building it in 1987, intending to finish it by 1989, but there was a, some issues with the materials. So they had to wait a little bit, and then they began to work, 
And uh, in 1991, December 1991, what happened? The fall of the Soviet Union. So with that, of course, you know, North Korea had great financial crisis. So in 1992, they had to stop building that hotel. And they have tried and tried and tried. In 2008, they resumed the work again, expecting to finish it by 2012. But believe it or not, this attempt failed again due to the continued economic crisis. And the hotel remains unopened to date. To me, this unfinished, good-looking outside, good-looking building is an exact representative image of the North Korean government. The government, this government, tries hard to look powerful by threatening the rest of the world with missile launches and nuclear weapons. But inwardly, they can't even feed the majority of their people with a decent meal a day. They can't even have meat every day. They don't even have money to feed them two meals a day. Even the one meal they get fat, it's just so minimal nutrition. And that's what the North Korean government is. But they outwardly, they try to show off. But inwardly, they're all empty. They're nothing inside. And this building in Pyongyang, Yurgyeong Hotel, really brings shames to this country, entire country. Can you imagine? The entire country works on it, and they fail to build it. It's not a company. It's an entire country. And, and just like that, the person who've begun to build but failed to build a tower, just like the, the North Korean government who began to build this Rugyang Hotel but failed to finish it. So many people attempt to follow Jesus and fail along the way. At first, they seem to be doing well in their pursuit of Christ, but they soon drift away from Jesus when they begin to experience difficulties in life. What's wrong with these fake believers, fake disciples? From the beginning, their decision to follow Christ was an emotionally driven, hasty decision. I'm not saying that emotions are not necessary. I'm not saying that a decision is not necessary. But the problem is that their decision was quickly made solely on the basis of emotions. They didn't think about giving everything they had to Christ because Christ gave everything to them first. They made a quick decision to follow Jesus without seriously counting the high cost of discipleship. So many couples in the world make hasty decisions to marry without deeply thinking about what it takes to have a happy and healthy marriage. They may be able to have a seemingly happy marriage for the first weeks, months, and years. But when the love hormones begin to wear off, what happens? Everything becomes so miserable. Their supposedly happy marriage quickly turns a miserable one. Here's a small advice, uh, advice for those who are not married yet and who are newly married. Marriage can be hard even when both husband and wife love each other dearly and fully committed to each other. Let me say it again. Marriage can be hard, even when you are fully committed to each other. But what about a marriage in which the both the husband and wife are not fully committed yet? This, this is inevitable that this marriage will fall apart. Marriage is not a 50-50 contract. It is a 100-100 covenant. Just like that, we have to treat Jesus as our husband. 
But sadly, just like the people who take their marriage vows lightly, so many people in the churches hardly ever consider discipleship seriously. They wrongly think that they can follow Jesus with a half-hearted, half-hearted devotion. It doesn't mean they don't like Jesus, but still to them, other things in the world are as important as or even more important than Jesus. Today's text is a warning toward them that they will not be able to finish what they began. Unless they change the path of their life direction dramatically, their end will only bring shame to themselves. So verse 29, lest after he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So only the people who are fully assured that Jesus is infinitely more important than anything else in the world can follow Jesus and finish what they began. The lesson of the second of the uh, twin parables is, this, is not different from the first parable. So verse 31, Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Again, what was the first thing the king had to do before another king with greater military power reached his kingdom? He had to sit and count. He needed to consider whether he could win the war. As he counted, he realized that the invading kingdom has twice as many soldiers. What should he do now? The only way to preserve his kingdom in his life was to send a delegation to make conditions of peace with the more powerful king. In doing this, he had to offer his entire kingdom to the other king, and then that king will let the surrendered king continue to rule his kingdom with conditions. What is the condition? That this surrendered king must be loyal to the more powerful king. And just like the weaker king did, we Christians must consider if we can ignore or fight the king who is coming back to the earth with his angelic host. We sung about these truths this morning. Of course, this coming king is our Lord, Jesus Christ. The only way to preserve our life is to submit ourselves with everything we own to this powerful king. Thus, the Lord makes a concluding statement of the two parables today. Verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we know that when Christ said we have to sell everything and follow him, he didn't mean that we, sell, we need to sell everything and enter a monastery. That's, what, that's not what he meant. What he means is that when there's anything that hinders us from following him, we must, we must give that up so that we can continue to follow Jesus. That's what he meant. What about the love of money? Now, we are so driven by this thing, mammon. And uh, we know, you know, I love capitalism more than I love social, uh, socialism. But does it mean that capitalism is okay? <laughs> Do you know in the Bible there are so much warning, there are so many warnings about money? And sometimes, you know, we conservative Christians think that as long as our government is capitalist, as long as it's democracy, we're safe. No, we're not safe. With money, with love of money, so many people are destroying their souls, Paul says. So we have to guard ourselves against the love of money if we want to follow Christ. What about the fear of men? So many people don't care about God loving them. That's why they never get comfort when they hear the gospel message. 
But when people begin to love them, compliment them, and say kindly to them, they begin to be energized. Because they fear man more than they fear God. They fear, they, they love people more than they love God. So if you are one of those people, you have to seriously consider whether you are one of his disciples yet. What about a job that forces you to do things contrary to Jesus' teaching? For instance, your job may require to, you to do some illegal thing. It may not be full-blown illegal thing, but you know it is not good. It's not ethical. Then what should you do with your job? It might be the only source of your incoming. Well, what should you do with your job to continue to follow Christ? You might be willing to let go of it because you are more loyal to your Jesus, your Lord, than, to your, than you're loyal to your job. What about your hobby? It is silly to me. How can you skip the church to have your hobby on Sundays? I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me. I'm sorry. I may be a little crude here. It doesn't make sense to me. If you say, I love Jesus, and you have two options, you can worship God, you can play golf, you can worship God, you can watch a sport. And how can you choose sports over Jesus when you say, I gave everything to Jesus? I'm sorry for being rude and being crude, but that's what Jesus is saying here. Please hear it. Hear it out. What about a sort of addiction? You know, we are filled with all kinds of addictions. And I'm a very addictive person, so I understand how powerful that is. And sometimes addic some addictions require medical help as well and some organizational program as well. But you need to make it the, the most important thing. If you have addiction problem, you need to stop everything right there. Just sit down. Count the cost. Is it Jesus or your addiction? It might take time to overcome it. I understand that. But you need to sit down and count. What's more important? Jesus or your fleshly passions and desires? According to Jesus, you have to choose Jesus. That's for sure. I just want to point out that the fact that point out the fact that while the twin parables teach the same lesson, they have slightly different emphases. The person in the first parable had the freedom to build or not to build the tower. It means Jesus never forces you to follow him. We have the freedom to follow or not follow Jesus. That's, that's there in the handout. The person in the first parable had the freedom to build. But the second parable has a slightly different emphasis. The king in the second parable could do nothing but surrender to the invading king to escape the impending destruction. This detail emphasizes the truth that those who do not surrender to the king Jesus will not escape the coming judgment. So here's the deal. You have the freedom to follow Jesus or not. It's up to you. But remember, if you don't follow him, the end result is always eternal lostness and eternal destruction. That's what these two parables are emphasizing to us this morning. Here's a caveat. After hearing this sermon, you might feel, oh, Pastor Joe, he's, he's always loyal to Jesus. He's always faithful to Jesus. I will never be able to, be able to become like him. You, if you have that kind of feeling, Please remember, remember, that's not my intention, and that's not the reality either. I, I'm not faithful as I should in many, at many moments of my life. What Jesus requires when he said you need to count the cost and ready to pay it, he doesn't mean a perfection. He doesn't mean that we always perfectly choose Jesus over everything, every moment of our lives, and then somehow that completes our salvation. That's not 
what he means. How do we know? You remember Peter. He gave up everything to follow Jesus, according to Matthew 19.27. He literally said, Lord, we gave up everything to follow you. And Jesus said, hey, but, but that's right. I'm going to reward you in the coming kingdom. That's the discussion that was going on in Matthew 19. So he was a true believer and true follower of Jesus. Does it mean that he always followed Jesus perfectly and faithfully? We know before his death, Jesus' crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus three times. And even after receiving the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter committed a sin of hypocrisy out of the fear of men. And that's recorded in Galatians 2. And Paul had to rebuke Peter publicly. And what Paul said was amazing. He said, hey, Peter, you say you believe the gospel and you are not leaving the gospel. So I have to rebuke you. You see here? I'm not saying that because Peter failed, it's okay to fail. That's not my point. But what I'm saying is Peter failed even as a true believer. Yet what did Jesus do to Peter? In John 21, Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. And last time he swore and cursed, I don't know him. What did Jesus ask Peter? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? At the third time, Peter remembered. He denied Jesus three times and he became grievous. But Jesus was restoring him. Why? Because he was a true believer and true disciple and he had a desire to continue to follow Jesus despite the failures, the terrible failures he committed. So my, my point is not that you must be perfect to be Jesus' disciple. But what I'm saying is you may have failed yesterday. You may fail yesterday. You might have failed yesterday. But you'd live your life as disciple of Christ today. So let's go back to Luke 9. Luke 9, 23, the Lord said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. When? Daily. Daily. And follow me. The idea of taking up our cross daily means that our pursuit of Christ must continue daily. But it also means this. If you fail yesterday, if you failed yesterday, you failed to take up your yesterday cross. And the new dawn came up, right? The sun came up this morning. Now you have another opportunity to take up your cross for today. This is a word of comfort from the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we, it's, it'd be better, it's be best to continue to take up the cross daily successfully. But there will be days that you fail. But it doesn't mean you should stay there. What should you do when you face those failures? Again, sit down and count the cost. Remember what you said when you said, I do to the marriage vow between your husband Jesus and you when you believe the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then take up your cross for today and follow after him again. That's my point. So don't be discouraged if you feel like you are in the deep valley. The Lord Jesus is telling you, hey, dear brother, Anna, dear son, uh, well, actually, Jesus is not son and daughter. Dear disciple of mine, why don't you count the cost again and take up your cross for today and follow me? I'll help you. I have, I've given you the spirit. I've given you the word of God. I've given you the church so you can do it with all these helps. Do you truly desire to follow Christ? That we must constantly count the cost of following Jesus and continue to get ourselves ready to pay it.
We pay the cost by laying down everything that belongs to us at the feet of Christ. He is worthy of such devotion and commitment because he had already given up his whole life for us. Let's remember this truth and leave out, leave it out throughout this week. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for sending your son to us. The reason we can't even discuss this truth this morning together is because you initiated it, Lord. All we deserve is hell, eternal hell. All we deserve is eternal lostness. All we deserve is eternal destruction. But somehow, I don't understand why you chose me, why you love me. There's nothing lovable about me. Yet you loved me anyhow, and you gave everything you had for me. So Lord, it's my turn. Lord, it's our turn. Now we need to count the cost of following Christ for today. And I know some of us here in this room are struggling with their addiction problem and with their job issues, with their love of money, with their love of their hobby, and the fear of man. Lord, please help them to lay them all uh, on the cross. They would nail them to the cross once again and count the cost and take up their cross and follow Christ. As the piano is being played, please take a moment to to sink this truth deep in your heart and commit yourself again to your, your husband, Jesus Christ.